right, church. But before we begin, I wanted to remind you that each week on about Tuesday, we send out to you an e-blast, an email to the church body that gives you information about what's going on with the church body, what we'll be doing in the coming weeks. And so don't forget to check that week to week, uh, not only for information about what we're up to, but also there are great articles that are linked in that uh, that will give you some more insight into some of the things we've been thinking about as your staff, as the pastors and elders of the church. Uh, so make sure that you, uh, you, you pay attention to that. Also, if you're not receiving that e-blast and you would like to, we've got information sheets on the back table this morning. Uh, that we're hoping that you'll fill out. Even if you think we have all your information all, already, it'll be good for you to fill those things out just to make sure we're going through and trying to put together a new church directory that's going to uh, help people, especially with Christmas cards during the Christmas season to get things out to the right places. And you can just write on that card. If we don't send out the e-blast to you yet, just write on that card, here's my email, and I would like to receive that e-blast. It'd be a great way for you to stay connected and to know what we have going on. Uh, on Tuesday, you might hear something about a movie that's coming up. It was just brought to our attention before service started today. Uh, Carolyn Ross um, caught wind of uh, a movie that's going to be in Brentwood at AMC Theaters that has to do with uh, the voice of the martyrs and some who have given their lives in honor of the gospel. So uh, we're going to check that out and get that information for you. And we uh, might even see about buying a block of tickets. So keep your eyes out for that on Tuesday. And we'll have some more information regarding that movie that's coming up uh, uh, next, not this week coming up, but the week after. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, we're going to look back to verses 1 through 3 to begin uh, with our time this morning. The Apostle Paul began this chapter like so. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Just in those first three verses of this very, very important chapter. We have two operative words, right? We have the word love, which is going to be the main theme for the rest of this chapter. And then we have the word nothing, which occurs several times. Both are major focuses of these first three verses. And there's a distinct relationship between the two that Paul wants us to understand and identify. If you don't have love, you can do nothing. At least you can do nothing that is worth doing, nothing that is pleasing to God, nothing that has any eternal merit. Love is essential. Do you see it there? We cannot do any good without love. Loveless religion is not beautiful or pleasing to God. It is an annoyance to Him. Loveless religion is in fact a parody of true love. But because love is essential, we must be certain that we think of love in the right ways, that we have in mind real godly love when we think about the importance of love, not some cheap counterfeit, some worldly knockoff of love that has sprung from the mind of man, but rather the godly love that Paul, the apostle, intends for us to grasp. And so that is what we've been learning about here over the last few weeks. This is a prime concern to chapter 13, so we're going to continue to think carefully and worshipfully about these things that Paul is sharing with the church in Corinth and also with us today. So let's continue reading verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Bow with me for just a minute as we pray and thank the Lord for all the things that we will see by, by the help of the Spirit today. Almighty God, we know that you are good and true, and we know that you are the one who preaches truth to us through your word. And so I pray, Father, that if you would use this time of my preaching to be a blessing to us as we have the scripture before us, and as we consider the things you have preserved for your church, God, then, then may it be so. Help us to bear fruit from the things that we learn today, Lord God, and to rejoice in the fact that no love in the world that we could ever encounter uh, can hold a candle to the godly love we have accepted in Christ. He has been more than we could imagine, and we are grateful that he sustains us, that he saves us, that he makes us more like himself through the process of sanctification. So God, we look forward to his return. In the meantime, we rejoice in him and in the truth that he brings. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an essential relationship between joy and love. When we are around something that we love, it brings us joy. We don't even have to be around that thing. Just thinking of something that we love can make us feel joyful about it. So love helps us to serve. Love helps us to want to sacrifice with a joyful heart and to give to others because we share in the victory when something that we love is doing well. Love rejoices, but it does not rejoice in everything. Love and joy are not the same thing. They're not equivalents. Joy can be a byproduct of love, but just because you enjoy something doesn't mean that you should love it. If I am acting in love, there are things that I cannot rejoice in. And conversely, there are things that I must rejoice in if love is important to me. So this is, this is the part of Paul's extended definition of godly love that is designed to cause us to pause and to think about our attitude towards good and evil. Paul confronts us with a reality that may challenge our current concept of love. So let us meditate on this declaration clearly here. First, Paul tells us plainly that godly love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This is in verse 6. Wrongdoing, by the way, is more specific than wrong being. It's not just that godly love does not rejoice at wrong. It does. But Paul wants to specifically think about how godly love does not rejoice at doing the wrong things. The word is strongly tied to the concept of injustice in the Greek. And so it is the practice of doing what is wrong, what is unjust. So in what ways were the Corinthians rejoicing in wrongdoing and ignoring the truth? Why did Paul need to correct them? Well, they were, they were tolerating sexually immoral conduct within the church. Certain members of the church were behaving in ways that were lewd, that were more in line with the secular lost world around them instead of the purity of the church that God is preserving. Immorality so shocking that even non-believers would not put up with it was being numbered amongst the saints. They were also being disrespectful to one another, taking each other to court and suing each other over different disputes that they had. And so they were, they were putting the final judgment of what is right or wrong, not in the hands of their pastors and elders, but in the hands of godless arbitrators and, and unbelieving judges. They were flirting with pagan festivals where the best foods were often to be purchased in Corinth. 
They were not outright pushing away the trappings of the idolatry that used to define them, but were getting dangerously close to those things and causing confusion amongst weaker brethren that were not as mature in the faith. Some of the Corinthians were so intent on practicing and protecting their freedoms that in the name of exercising personal rights, they were willing to wound the conscience of less mature Christians. So this and, and, and other things even that we've spoken about were going on in the church of Corinth. But Paul does not just condemn all those who were behaving like this and cast them out of the church immediately. He insists instead upon change. Even if the Corinthians didn't know what they were doing was wrong necessarily, it was wrong. And so Paul, as a faithful apostle and as a loving elder, desires to make it clear why all those actions were not appropriate or acceptable among those who are a part of the body of Christ. He wants these Corinthians to repent and to return to the things that showed them salvation to begin with. We've reflected on how the Corinthians were rejoicing in wrongdoing. In what ways do the people today rejoice in wrongdoing? And people clearly do. It's not hard for us to think of a dozen ways right off the top of our heads how the world today is behaving as almost a manifestation of the condemnation we read of in Romans 1, where it talks about how the people exchange the truth for a lie and worship the created thing rather than the creator. It's not just an out there problem, though. When we think about the world around us, when we think about how the world rejoices in wrongdoing, we also have to turn the lens upon ourselves and ask, how is the church open to sinful behaviors and actions today? How have we become complacent to sin? And how has that complacency allowed wickedness to infect the people of God? Particularly for those in the church, it is helpful to see our attitudes towards wrongdoing typically changes by degrees. It's not just something that happens all of a sudden. There's a process by which we move from rejoicing in the truth to lowering our guard and beginning to look upon sin and upon unrighteousness in dangerously favorable ways. And so I'm going to outline a process that we might follow in the way that the church has started to f- slide off the path uh, in, in general in the world today. Um, first of all, we begin to tolerate wrongdoing when we are exposed to it ad nauseum in the world that we live in. When the church begins to tolerate wrongdoing, this is the first step towards rejoicing in wrongdoing. Tolerance is not just coexistence, is it? I, I, I bet you've probably seen those bumper stickers that say coexist on it. And it's got a little symbol for each of the letters that kind of is loosely tied to one of the major uh, religious groups in the world. But tolerance is not just you live there and I live here. Through the mediation of the prophet Moses, the Israelites were given a land in the Old Covenant. You remember reading about that, a place of promise that they could not only call their home, but a place where they could worship the one true God in a holy way, in the way that he had commanded them to worship him. But in order to preserve the holiness of his people, in order to shield them from the influence of others who had zero respect, zero faith in Yahweh and in his law, God commanded the Israelites to eradicate the Canaanites from the land. They were to go in and take possession of the land, but they were to push out all the Canaanites who were living there prior to their arrival. These were a wicked and godless people. They were to drive them out. And if they did not leave, they were to put them to the sword. These Canaanites were a people who rejoiced in wrongdoing. And God knew that if their attitudes of friendliness to sin was allowed to coexist with Israel, 
It would only be a matter of time before Israel began to adapt the lazy attitude of the Canaanites and loosen their own moral standards and begin to walk in their ways instead of the ways that God had prescribed for them. And that is exactly what happened, didn't it? We see that the Israelites were lax in their command. They did not force those Canaanites out of the land. We see example after example of Israelites falling into the patterns of behavior that the Canaanites had, especially when their hearts became, uh, in, 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 uh, their hearts became attracted to the ways of the Canaanites. Samson is lured by Delilah into disobedience and disregard. Solomon makes room for the worship of false gods at the Asherah poles in Israel because he's got all these foreign wives and they all want to worship their foreign gods at these Asherah poles. We see how the nation of Israel stops becoming a loving people and begins to put their focus and attention on, the mo on money and the love of power and influence to the detriment of the weaker and, and, and more vulnerable Israelites around them. And so these Israelites began to mimic the Canaanites that they were exposed to, that they were tolerating in their midst. We're not a kingdom. We are not a kingdom in exactly the same way that Israel was. They were effectively theocratic. That means they were not a democracy. They didn't rule by the consent of many. They were not a socialistic environment where everyone pulled their resources together and, and lived with equity. They were not a republic where there was representation and, and, and the ability to vote. They were a benevolent monarchy where God himself was seen as sitting on the throne of the nation. He was in the ultimate place of authority. These Israelites had a geographic piece of the world where they could regulate their way of life. They had borders, and within those borders, they had a heavy degree of control. We, as the church today, do not enjoy those advantages. We are part of a heavenly kingdom. But our king is preparing a place for us to dwell. And in the meantime, we are pilgrims and sojourners in a land that is not our own land. So we are not called to drive the sinner out of the land, friends. We are called to preach the sin out of the sinner by bringing the gospel to the lost and trusting that the gospel preached will work in concert with the Holy Spirit pricking the hearts of men to bring about salvation in those who need Jesus Christ. So what exactly is the mindset of toleration that is effectively the first steps towards rejoicing in wrongdoing. When we have this mindset of toleration of sin, it means that we are battling against sin in ourselves, but we are not battling sin itself. We are not taking a stand against unrighteousness in general. We're only really trying to refine our own heart and making ourselves walk in the way of truth. That's a form of tolerance. We're just allowing sin to happen in the world. We're not really caring about it, not paying too much attention to it as long as we're staying in our lanes. And that tolerance is dangerous because it gets you right up next to people who are living in a way that is disrespectful to God, that is unloving, that is false and deceptive, and it inevitably begins to influence the church. A second way that we tolerate wrongdoing is thinking that in so far as the wickedness of others does not get too close to me, then that wickedness is not dangerous. Well, while we know in truth, by reading the word, that sin is always dangerous. Sin is always corrupting. It is always destructive. It might not be destructive right now, today, in obvious ways that we can see. But sin is something that we must be battling against and putting to death in our lives by the power of God. We cannot just tolerate it in the people around us. We should be preaching against it, 
we should be standing against it. But when we tolerate sin, then we, we take the next step usually, which is the affirmation of a person's right to sin and to offend against God. Sin at any level is wrong. So to defend a person's right to offend God is to prioritize our own freedom above God's holiness. This is a tough thing for us to think through because we've been indoctrinated since we were very little as Americans to think that freedom of religion is a God-given right. But that's not really a right that God gave to us. It is a right that Adam gave to us in his sin. By rejecting God in the garden, he essentially said, I'm going to worship my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I don't want to follow the precepts of God. I don't, I'm not happy with the one religion that God has given to me and to my wife Eve. And so that's a, a right given by Adam. It is his curse that has caused the worship of the true God to be a maybe and not a natural course of life. We were designed to worship the king. And all people, whether they claim Christianity or not, are subject to the fallout and the impact of sin. And here are some ways that we may affirm a people's right to sin. We, we allow laws to come into effect that give sin legal sanction. We live in a nation right now, we, we are grieving over several of these laws. We think about abortion and how the murder of the unborn, because it has a legal sanction over it, has become widespread. It has become embraced by a majority of the people in this land. Not only that, but some are so passionately defensive of man's supposed right to end life before birth that they would look at Christians who preach against abortion and claim that we are immoral because we don't care about people's freedoms. That's how twisted the world gets sin. So when we tolerate sin, the, the natural course of action, the next step is to not only tolerate it, but then to defend it amongst others, to defend people's right to sin if they feel led to sin or if, that, if that's their personal conviction. That's not a good kind of toleration, friends. That's not, that's not a good kind of care for your neighbor. If we really care about our neighbor, we should not want them to be falling into sin because we know the death that it brings. We should be willing to stand against sin. We should be willing to preach against sin. We should, with heartfelt cries, urge others not to sin because that sin is a damage to their relationship with God. The third step in this wicked progression is that inevitably we start to develop a growing interest in this wrongdoing that we have tolerated and then we've made specific sanctions for and, and room for. We begin to start to develop our own interest towards that sin. It becomes alluring to us. We begin to think upon it more. We begin to wonder if there's any virtue in that sin. Look at Psalm 101, verses 1 through 4. The psalmist writes, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. This doesn't sound very tolerant, does it? It sounds passionate and it sounds committed to what? to the truth of God and to His holiness. Why does the psalmist say, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless? Because when we 
make special room for sin, when we allow it to, to just flourish all around us, then we are subjecting ourselves to exposure to sin constantly. And this is not good for the heart of a believer. We've got to learn to want to have the same attitude of this psalmist, where we hate the work of those who fall away from the Lord God, how we determine that it will not cling to me. That kind of a rebellious attitude will not work its way into my heart. Think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.8, where he gives us the other side of that. The psalmist said, I will not look upon worthless things. And then Paul says in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lowly, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Put these things before your eyes. Proclaim these things to the world. Put them in front of your children. Share these things with your neighbor. Friends, even when we have alternatives in the society that we live in, we've got a Christian music industry, don't we? We've got Christian filmmakers. We've got Christian clothing lines with their own personal spin-offs where they try to redeem the, the phrases and the turn of words that the culture so commonly uses. So we've got all these alternatives, but inevitably the sin that we have first tolerated and then even defended the, others, the rights of others to commit, those sins will begin to be the sins that dwell upon our own minds. And we will struggle to maintain the holiness of our minds if we continue to meditate on those things. Temptations rise as we give place to the devil. Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 27 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, having put it away, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So we have put falsehood away from us. Let us not then allow falsehood to spring up wherever it, it, it rears its ugly head. Let us be determined to take a stand against the things of darkness. But when falsehood is not put away, when it is allowed to linger, we're tempted to admire the works of darkness. We're, attempted, we're uh, tempted to think about those things as good and normal and right. There are video games today that your kids can go down to the store and buy where the whole point of the video game is to break as many laws in that virtual world as possible, to do as much damage, to end as many virtual lives as you possibly can. That's where our society is today, friends. That's how much we have come to tolerate the wickedness, not only around us, but the wickedness that we've allowed to come right up against us. We've been given literary heroes, and, and some of the heroes in our movies and our most dear stories to us are wretched sinners. They're criminals who just because they may have one redeeming quality or some pragmatic thing to, to, to be useful to society, they're passed off as a benefit and an example to follow. And so we lift these people up as great when the vast majority of their characters is corrupt and is, is, is uncommendable. What we allow ourselves to admire is so important because the hands of man will follow the direction of his heart, won't it? Jesus teaches that in Mark 7, verses 20 through 23. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things, these evil things, come from within 
and they defile a person. And, and you don't need something from outside of you to, to spur that on. We have the capacity for wickedness in ourselves. But when you're constantly setting up as examples around you wicked heroes and wicked ideals and licentiousness, and we're glorifying the freedoms of men to do whatever they want, even if it is a disgrace to God, then we are tempting our hearts to begin to operate in the wicked ways that they did before the Lord God called us out of our sin. If we admire wrongdoing, if we begin to see it as, as, as uh, attractive, then eventually interest leads to a pursuit of wrongdoing. Our interest in it will cause us to want to participate in that sin. When our hearts are not caught up in the pursuit of the will of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we are susceptible to being swept up in much less noble pursuits. The more we're implicated because of our own pursuits of wrongdoing, the harder it becomes to stand against the truth. Think about this. Not much has to be said about it. When you see other people doing wrong things and you begin to envy their freedoms, you begin to envy the, what seems to be joy that they experience when they dive into these sins, you begin to wish that you had those kind of freedoms, eventually you're going to be tempted to do those things. And then once you begin to practice those wicked things as well, then it starts to make a lot more sense to make room for those things in your culture. Then it becomes a lot more nerve-wracking to think about confronting sin in others because you know you've got sin in your own life and you've been making room in, in your own heart for sin. So you'll feel like a hypocrite if you go out and, and preach the goodness of Christ. You'll, you'll feel like a hypocrite if you go to your brother or sister and urge them to turn away from their sin. If you've, if you've hidden sin in your heart, if you've made room for it in your own practice, this practice of wrongdoing doesn't just stop at activity. Eventually, the heart begins to exalt wrongdoing. No longer is sin just a viable option. Now it begins to seem to be the best way. It may even be passed off as the only moral way. Those who speak out against sin are quickly seen as the enemies of a free society, and good is spoken of as evil. You see how people can so easily exchange the truth for a lie. But we can also rejoice in wrongdoing even when we ourselves are not caught up in it. And this kind of rejoicing can also be detrimental to the unity of the body of Christ. Our pride can cause us to rejoice in wrongdoing by reveling in the sinful fall of others. We might see somebody else engaged in wrongdoing and then get some sort of pleasure from watching them fall because of that. We might gossip about their failures. We might grab a hold of whatever news that we get that somebody else is not walking in the truth. And rather than going to that individual in love and trying to speak to them face to face because they're a brother or sister in Christ, instead, we turn to the, to the whisper and we pass that knowledge on to others who have no part in the resolution of that problem. Rather than care enough to speak to somebody face to face and urge them towards Christ, and to minister to their hurting heart and to their confusion. Rather, we revel in their failure. We rejoice in their loss because it's just one more evidence that we are better than somebody else. We begin to rejoice in the wrongdoing of others by way of thinking that ourselves are superior to those who fail and fall. I imagine when Ravi Zacharias' moral failure became apparent to the world, this happened just a couple years ago, a man who had debated some of the great minds in the world who had fought for the gospel and argued for the truth, but 
in his personal life was committing terrible things against the word of God. I, I imagine that when his moral failure came out, that there were many who debated against Ravi. They rejoiced in a little way. They smiled inside because this man that had the truth but didn't walk by it was now shown to be a counterfeit. And so many times, friends, we, we see somebody who seems to be really good and we might be envious of their holiness. We might, we might wish we could walk the way that they walked. We might have a, a, a coveting heart for their knowledge or for their truth. And then we see them fail. And it is the temptation of our enemy to make us just a little bit happy that that, that example of goodness is now dropped down a notch. That's wrong, friends. We cannot rejoice in truth like that. We must rejoice in God's victories, whether they are inside of us or inside of somebody else. We can rejoice in wrongdoing so that we might glory in the destruction of the wicked. But let's think about this carefully. Should we glory in the destruction of those who are without Christ? Ezekiel 33, 11 says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? It is God's good pleasure to save some. We know through the doctrine of election that it is not God's good pleasure to save all, is it? He does not choose to cause the work of the Holy Spirit to enlighten every mind. Some people will see the gospel, they'll see it plain as day, and they just will not believe in it. We don't know the reasons for that. Christ has those reasons in his heart. He doesn't choose to share every detail of that with us. But just because not everyone is chosen for salvation does not mean that God enjoys lining people up just to knock them down again. The fall of man who runs apart from God produces proof of God's justice. It does something good when God condemns a sinner to judgment. It shows us the power of God. It shows us the judgment of God. And it is part of his design for how the story of redemption is supposed to play out. That is part of his glory. But God does not revel in the outcome. It is a sad thing for people made in the image of the living God to run headlong into sin and to earn condemnation as a result. But it is a just result and it is a necessary one. So if God does not laugh at the downfall of those who are swept up in temptation's wake, neither should we. We are not the ones who have been violated when people sin. God is the one who has been violated. We are not the authority who has been opposed. It is God's authority that has been opposed. God is the one who is, is hurt by that. He has good reason to take pleasure in the destruction of his enemies. But rather than do that, he feels pity and compassion for them. The Corinthians and all Corinthians need to learn to train their hearts to think the right way about sin. And the right way to think about sin isn't toleration. We have every reason to hate sin. We have every reason to reject it and to give it no place in our lives. Look at Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to Him. Haughty eyes and a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is pretty strong language. The Lord God doesn't just prefer righteousness to wickedness. He hates sin. It is sin that separates God from the very man that he made in his image, 
from man whom he loves. If there was something in your life that made it impossible for you to be near to your own children, would you tolerate it? Would you resist it? Wouldn't you hate it? You would hate it, friends. We should hate sin and the impact that it has on the hearts of man. Because if we are honest in our reading of the Word of God, then we would also have to confess that because God hates sin, He also hates sinners. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. It's not a passage you're going to find a lot of Hallmark cards, but it's a declaration of truth, right? The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. It is probably not too hard for us to say amen to the fact that God hates sin. We see sin as God's eternal enemy. Sin isn't made in the image of God. It is a faceless thing and not a person. And that wicked thing is a danger to the living beings that God clearly cares deeply about. So it's not hard to imagine God hating sin itself. But it makes some of us really uncomfortable to say that God hates sinners. Maybe because we are aware of our own sin. We shudder to think that God could hate someone who has struggled with rebellion like we have. And yet there is a righteous, justifiable hatred that God holds towards those who rebel against His law and have no regard for the one who made them. We are to hate sin as God hates sin. We know that. Are we to hate sinners as well? Part of the reason that Scripture describes God as hating sinners, is that God has something we do not. God has perfect judgment. God has never had an opinion in his life. He knows, and that's all. He doesn't have an idea about anything. God knows. He knows what is. He knows what is not. His judgment is absolutely perfect immediately, every time. So the word does not tell us that God hates all sinners here. And we must conclude from Scripture that God, knowing beforehand whom He will redeem from sin and who He will not redeem from sin, that's the doctrine of election, that, that He knows perfectly the difference between a, a condemned sinner who will never repent and a condemned sinner who will soon experience the effectual call and be numbered among the elect. This second group is not hated, but rather experiences the long-suffering patience of God until the day that he or she is regenerated. Because God knows from time past who He will save, He can love a person who, though they may be a sinner today, is soon to be made alive in Christ. But to those who will never trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He has the right to say that He hates them. Now, you don't know who those people are. So you and I, with imperfect judgment, cannot say that we hate the sinner. Romans 5.8 says, God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. We lack perfect judgment. I'm grateful that the Lord God was willing to love me even though I was a rebel to His kingdom. Even though I was wretched and I fought against His will. Even though I acted in such a way as I dishonored the Scripture and I made His commands to be something, something like it was nothing to me. Yet God continued to love me through that sin. We lack perfect judgment. So we should leave hatred of sinners to God alone. For the person that we might hate might very well be a person whom God has chosen to save, but yet not that we can see. He's going to redeem that person one day. He's going to make them a brother and sister. And so as those who do not have that perfect judgment, 
we must approach people with a kind of compassion and pity, knowing that we ourselves were in their position at one time as well, and that God may very well be saving that person, just not today. Leviticus 17, verses 17 through 18 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There's something very interesting about this Old Testament passage. We are told very clearly not to hate here. Who? Our brother. And so some have said, yeah, we don't have, we can, you know, treat our brothers with dignity and respect. We, can, we should never hate our brothers. But we can hate somebody who's not our brother. We can hate somebody who's not a Christian. But we also see in the same breath, brother and neighbor are both in mind here. They are used as parallel equivalents. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. That's the same person. And in the New Testament, Jesus tells us through the parable of the Good Samaritan that a neighbor is not properly a son of our own people. A neighbor is anyone who's willing to treat someone else with love and respect. So the old covenant nation of Israel was, was called to love their fellow countrymen. We, as, as new covenant recipients of grace, are called to something different. We're called to love even our enemies, church. And it is safe to assume that our enemies are just that. They are our enemies because they do not love God and they rejoice in wrongdoing. They have embraced sin and they are living in that sin. How do you love them? You love them by preaching the gospel to them, friends. You do not love them by never stepping on their toes and letting them have freedom to run off into licentiousness. You don't love them by saying, well, you've got your lane and I've got my lane. As long as I stay in mine and you stay in yours, then we'll all be all right. The way that we love the lost is by leaving this sanctuary, this place where we think basically the same, and going out into the world, going out to where the people are in the highways and the hedges and preaching the gospel to them and letting the light of Christ shine, not hidden under a bushel somewhere, but put on a lampstand so that the whole world can benefit from it. And that starts with you, right, church? We as Christians must not have this mindset of toleration to sin, especially when it comes to ourselves. But rather, we need to commit to putting our own personal sin to death. We have the resource to do that in Christ. Apart from Him, you can't put your sin to death. You are nothing but a slave to the things that rule you. But in Christ Jesus, we've been given this wonderful freedom this ability to look sin in the face and say, that's not me anymore. I was a reviler. I was a liar. I was an alcoholic. I was a homosexual. I was a cheater. I was a violent person. I was a reviler, but I'm not that anymore. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were made new in the Spirit of God. So commit to putting your sin to death, church, but also... Understand that the work that Christ did to save you did not just cancel out what was wrong in you. Salvation results in forgiveness of sin and a new heart for all who believe in Him. With that new heart comes what? New affections. New love. If God has brought your spirit to life, then He has awakened in you a new capacity to care for the things that used to be detestable to you to care for the things that used to be a joke to you. Now they are the things that are most precious to you. Godly love rejoices. It rejoices specifically in the truth. 
And what is in mind here is the truth of God, namely the salvation that comes to man only through Jesus Christ. You don't have the freedom to both rejoice in wrongdoing and rejoice with the truth. You can't do both. You have to choose to do one or the other. As Romans 12, 9 commands us, let love be genuine. I like the New American Standard version there. It says, let love be free from hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. We don't have the luxury of straddling the line and pretending like we are comfortable in both camps. We have left the covenant of Adam to draw near to God through the covenant of grace. And so our affections, the things that we love and desire and put our eyes upon should reflect that change. Take note of what Paul says to the Corinthians. Godly love doesn't just rejoice in the truth. And I know some of your translations might say that. It might say godly love rejoices in the truth. But the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Version picks up on a small nuance there in the Greek, which is beyond my learning, but having studied it through commentaries, it makes a lot of sense to me. It rejoices with the truth. The difference there being that we don't just rejoice in a truthful thing over there, but we rejoice with the truth that God brings into our lives. Truth doesn't become something we admire from afar. It is integral to our lives. And we work alongside the truth. We carry the standard of truth with us wherever we go. And it impacts our every decision and our every way of life. If you have godly love for someone, that love must be based on this truth that Christ alone saves through grace alone, by way of faith alone. Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Because love is an action and not a feeling, we cannot just love indiscriminately. We must love in a truthful way. These two concepts are, are bound to one another. So the person who is lost and does not know Christ but sa says they are loving, says, what does it matter what I do as long as I care about people, as long as I am loving to them? If they are not pointing people to Christ, their capacity for love is radically diminished. There might be some affection there for that other person, but they can't love with the kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13 is teaching us to use. There is a cooperation and a fellowship that the saints have with the truth. We're not just happy that truth is out there and the truth is good. We rejoice along with it. And that is why the Apostle Paul describes the way that we are to grow into a mature picture of Christ, living in a united way and gathering as the body, that our speech will display a, a holy unity between truth and love. We cannot have a foot in one camp, in the camp of the world, and a foot in the other, the camp of truth. We must decide what we will rejoice in. In fact, the progression that we saw earlier is so common among those who tolerate sin and deception that, that it plays out in the opposite way for those who rejoice in the truth. Before you experience the effectual call of, of salvation, you are not a friend to truth, but the Spirit changes the way you think about it. And so then you begin to tolerate truth. When the Lord wakes you up and makes you understand that, that truth comes only from God and it is beautiful, you don't just tolerate it, you embrace it. And the God of truth embraces you by His grace. When we're saved by the Holy Spirit of God, our seal, our guarantee, the Holy Spirit is given to us. He becomes our constant companion. But look at how Jesus describes the priceless gift that becomes ours through grace. In John 14, 16 through 17, it says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, 
to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. What kind of spirit is the Holy Spirit? It's the spirit of truth. And as that spirit of truth comes to dwell with believers, we begin to be influenced by that presence and the strength of his character to the degree that not only do we tolerate truth, we affirm truth. We confess it with our mouth. Psalm 119, 151 says, But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. We see this affirmation of truth in Paul's own ministry, don't we? 2 Corinthians 11.10, Paul says, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Who is Paul boasting in? Not in himself. He's boasting in the Lord, in the product of the Lord's grace. So by affirming, affirming the truth, we show our intentions to participate with the truth. We, we proclaim it to the world. We confess it with our mouths. The very idea of amen, which is a word that Christians often say mindlessly, but shouldn't. The idea of saying amen is a verbal acknowledgement and confession of truth. We affirm that what God is, is, is saying is true. We say amen to it. When someone prays on our behalf, we conclude that prayer with amen because we're indicating that those things the brother or sister just prayed are the very things that we desire to communicate to God as well. So as truth is obeyed in our hearts, we begin to affirm that truth. We begin to live the amen with our lives. And then over time, we start to develop an ever-increasing interest in the truth. Do you see how this is kind of chiasmatic? So you can fall away from the Lord in this certain pattern, but when we live in the grace of God, we see this pattern blossom truth within our lives. We begin to rejoice in the right ways as our interest begins to become piqued over the things of God. Psalm 95, 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. We have an enthusiasm to come and learn from His Word, to come enjoy the fellowship of the saints. It should not be like a chore for us to come around the brothers and sisters of God. It should not be a chore for us to come underneath the, the teaching of His Word. It should be something that interests us. It should be something that we want to know more of, that our love for the Lord may not stay just a shallow puddle, but might grow to deep like an ocean. To pursue the Lord is no longer a chore or a burden. It is a growing desire to you. So you begin to not only have an interest in the truth, you begin to pursue the truth. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What a, what a magnificent object of our love. Should we not desire to pursue this God? And in the pursuit of him, as we see his holiness and his goodness and his truth, the sin of the world should become less and less attractive to us. It should have less of a, of a positive effect on our, our emotions or our desires. We should begin to, to feel gross about sin. It should become detestable to us. What an impossible task to know the complexities of the triune God who is so much greater than we are and whose thoughts and ways are infinitely beyond our own. But praise be to God that through the Spirit we can pursue that deep and rich love. We can understand it more and more the more we put the scripture before ourselves. 
1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 11 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What a blessing it is that we've been given the Spirit of truth so this vastly huge God, whom we will never totally understand, is yet something we can engage with, is something that we can begin to learn much about. We can pursue Him. We can have a greater desire to know a deeper depth of who He is. And so what God has made possible for us to know, we ought to not set aside or neglect. What was a complete mystery to us before is now a knowable treasure. And having seen the power and blessing of, of the dwelling of truth in us, let our hearts rejoice in growing ever more acquainted with that truth and ever more faithful to live according to it. And then the final product of this progression, where we put our eyes before godly things and desire what is holy and true, when we rejoice in the truth, John 4.23, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So as truth becomes more fundamental to our everyday, as we begin to rejoice more and more alongside this truth as it fills us and as we put it before our eyes every day, then we want to worship this, this truth that God has given to us. We want to worship the God of truth. Not because it, it is a means to get what we want. Not because worshiping Him helps us to manipulate the heart of God and makes Him shower us with blessings or, 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 or good things, but because the object of our faith, this truth itself, is our prize. It is better than costly gold and pure silver. Even when the truth is a light that happens to reveal our own sin, we can rejoice in that truth. As we begin to rejoice in what God has done through truth, we'll begin to see that that truth reveals in us things that are broken, things that fall short. And so the, the Christian is somebody who doesn't push back against that, but rather, though it stings, rejoices in the fact that they have a dad who loves them well, has a, a father in heaven who's willing to call out their sin and care for them, just as we as the church are being called to show the world how dangerous sin really is. So when the Lord reveals through His truth something that's broken in you, don't become bitter about it. Don't become overwhelmed and depressed that you weren't perfect the first try, but embrace that correction. Be grateful to see the darkness cast away from you by the light of truth. The truth is that you are not one who is perfect. Christ is the one who is perfect. So we have no perfect record to defend. We can be humble in letting the truth of God wash over us like water. 2 Corinthians 9, 8-9 says, For even if, you made, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. This is Paul later on speaking to the same Corinthians that he preached this message of love to earlier. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And friends, this is a kind of grief we need to see more of in our own lives, a grief over our own sin. All of us are grieved that our freedoms are being put into question. All of us are grieved for those we have lost to sickness and cancer, even COVID. All of us are grieved when we don't have the work we need to make the bills. But let us be grieved over our sin. Let us be grieved over the very thing that threatens our nearness to the God of truth himself. 
And this is so important, friends, because you cannot rejoice with the truth if you reject the source of all truth. There are scientists and philosophers, there are judges and scholars who think that their life's work is to pursue the facts, to live according to truth. But the one truth that is foundational to every other truth is this, that there is only one God, that we owe our existence to that one God. And though, though that God is good and holy and deserves our worship, every one of us has rebelled against that God. Every one of us has broken his law through sin. These are the facts, friends. It is fact that we are helpless to undo that great error that we've committed against him. It is the truth that there is only one hope to be reconciled to God whom we have offended, and that is through the blood of Jesus poured out for his people on the cross. This is the one truth that saves. Rejoice in that truth, affirm it, desire more of that truth, pursue it, and exalt and worship this God who is ever true. Let's bow in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the grace that you have poured out on your people through salvation. We thank you, Lord God, that though we still wrestle with sin every day, we should as believers, Lord God, that you have given us the means to overcome. On our own power, that is a match we would lose again and again and again. But through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, you have helped us to have eyes that see and ears that hear. So help us to rejoice in the truth. Help us to be grateful for what we see in Christ, even if we don't yet see that in us, Lord God. His willingness to serve, his confidence, his boldness to speak the truth, Lord God. Make those things increase in us. Please grant your children with even more grace that we might represent you well, Lord, and live as a light in this dark world, God. Help us to not be so tolerant of sin that we are comfortable with it, saddling right up next to us, Lord God, that we don't ever speak out against it, that we are afraid to talk to our neighbors about it, Lord. We want to address these things, but ultimately, Lord God, the only real way we can address a lost person's sin is through Christ. So let every conversation come back to the cross and the empty tomb. Let us be ever de desiring to urge our loved ones, even our enemies, to consider the salvation that they can have in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for being tender with your children. We thank you, God, that when the truth reveals our sin, that it is not a condemnation, for we can see that that sin was carried even on the uh, shoulders of Christ at the cross. But we thank you, Father, that you love your children in such a way that you chastise us, but always with the end goal of us loving you more and walking more in your truth. Help us to rejoice in this family that we have that is all based on your truth and founded upon it. We're grateful, God, for the things that you teach us. Help us to walk in obedience to them in Jesus' name. Amen.